Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. It has been a bad year for Jacob's Well in Wimberley, Texas. For the sixth time since the year 2000, the aquifer that feeds this beloved swimming hole, some of you will no doubt have taken a dip there, has dropped to a level so unsustainable that it is impossible to swim or even at times to see water at the surface of the well. Due to a lack of rain and extreme heat, the swimming hole has become parched and dry. Some of us today, it seems to me, can identify with Jacob's well. And so Jesus promised that we just heard read in John chapter 7 at the very end there, building on the promises he's previously given in John 4 and throughout John chapter 6, promises of satisfaction and fruitfulness, of vitality in life, might sound to us like overselling, overpromising. A mirage in the desert, something that looks good but cannot ultimately satisfy, does not provide what it says on the box. At the end of the book Vanity Fair, William Thackeray writes, speaking for so many people's experience, which of us has their desire or having it is satisfied? Why don't I feel Like the life that Jesus is promising here is mine. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with Jesus? I've seen these questions behind your eyes as we've worked our way through the Gospel of John. Some of you have given voice to them to me. This morning, I'd like to look directly at this question. What is going on such that we do not experience or seem to experience the vitality of life that Jesus seems to be promising here in John 7, verses 37 and 39, right at the end? And I'd like to address four reasons why this might be the case. Four reasons why Jesus' words feel like a mirage. And those are wrong cisterns, broken cups, pierced sides, and true impossibilities. The first reason I'd like to address is wrong cisterns. Jesus' words here in John 7 are spoken in the context of this massive party, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And this feast, which was known as the greatest for the people of Israel during the time of Jesus' life, was this week-long reenactment of Israel's experience wandering in the wilderness. It was like Comic-Con for the experience in the wilderness. Dress up, build your tabernacle, build your booth, reenact living in the wilderness. And in addition to all of that, each day involved this procession, priestly procession, down to the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, where Jesus had healed the man he refers to on the Sabbath in John 5. But at the pool, the priests would have filled these great jars of water, which they then carried back up into the temple to the altar, where the jars would then, around everybody, this crowd, poured out on the altar, surrounding the stony ground, submerging it, soaking it with this water. This was all a commemoration of how God had supplied for the people of Israel in the wilderness Water, and Exodus 17, water from this stone, this famous story. 
This reenactment of this remarkable scene of God making way, a way for his people, satisfying their thirst. I was in downtown Vancouver in 2010 during the Olympic Games when the Canadian men's hockey team won the gold medal. There were like 400,000 people crammed into downtown. They played the Americans, and it's, this was a huge deal in Canada. They think like three quarters of the households watched it on TV in Canada. So it was a massive thing. And I have never been in a more packed place, just people wall to wall on the street, but joyful and celebratory. Uh, people climbing lampposts on top of um, bus stops, high-fiving strangers. Something of that experience, that ruckus, joyful experience is what is going on in the Feast of Tabernacles. And then imagine in that scene, in the middle of such a scene, Jesus takes center stage in the middle of this joyful party and cries out, it says, with a loud voice, anyone thirsty, come to me and a spring will flow from within you. Now there's a debate about the exact construction of Jesus' words here and whether he means to communicate that a spring will come up within the person who receives from him or if he's making a strong point that I am the source, that he is the source. Whatever's correct, it's clear from the entire Gospel of John, thinking especially of John chapter 4, that Jesus is proclaiming that those who come to him will surely receive living water. He's making a strong promise. And he's proclaiming it with some vigor, right? Loud voice, crying out. There's an insistence here. An insistence because Jesus sees people are thirsty. People are in need of real and satisfying water, need true and not false hope. This call is where the cry of God meets the cry of human beings, the desire of God to meet people in their need. The beginning of the book of Jeremiah in chapter two uses the image of water and calls the people of God to turn from drinking the wrong kind of water, water from wrong cisterns, broken pools, reservoirs that don't hold. And the prophet insists that the people of God have forsaken God's living water and they've built pools that can't satisfy. He's insistent on the point, just as Jesus is insistent here. Human beings are remarkable in our capacity to create meaning for ourselves from the stuff of life to make a career or hobby, our relationship or a leisure action, a reputation, wealth, to make that the stuff to which we look for meaning. Remarkable at making these kind of things the center of life. And even more remarkable is we're often successful in pursuing such things. We get what we're after. The notable thing about that quote from Vanity Fair is not about those who are frustrated in their pursuit of the desires, but that those who have sought out and won their desires remain unsatisfied. In our own lives, the most confounding aspect of the human condition is how our longings are, remain unsatisfied even as we seek out and get the things we think will meet them. Success, leisure, accolades, disposable income. That unquenched thirst, unquenchable, manifests in anxiety or apathy, in frustration, in resentment, is an indication 
that we have hewn for ourselves the wrong kind of cisterns. Cisterns that will not hold water. The job is inherently insecure. The relationship is incomplete. There are still more people to impress or to be compared to. The thing we sought after does not, cannot provide as we hoped. And people doing this, as people do this, Jesus calls out, cries out, still calls out. No, are you thirsty? Come to me. He says it in the courts of the temple to church-going people. He says it to the nations. He says it to the world. Do we heed him? Are we unsatisfied? Are our days marked by dryness and dust? The first consideration may be, have we drawn near to the one who is the living spring? The one who's God's provision in the wilderness of life. The one who's the rock in the desert from which an unending stream flows? Have we turned from those things that cannot satisfy and allowed Jesus to occupy the center of life? For some of us, I know this sense of dryness and dissatisfaction provokes in us a sense of we're not enough. We're not doing the things that we ought to do. So I stress for you this morning, the urgency with which Jesus makes this call is not an urgency born of condemnation or frustration, but of desperation for you. It's not born of insecurity. So he's like, please come drink from me, but a care and compassion for us, desiring that we be satisfied, desiring that our longings would be met in the only way they can, in him. As we satisfy ourselves, as we seek to satisfy ourselves in ways that cannot ultimately satisfy, Jesus sustains his call to us, to the world. He longs for you and I to be satisfied. He longs for you to drink from the well that will not run dry. So the first reason there might be this distance between what Jesus promises and our experience is this reality of wrong cisterns. The second is broken cups. Before I tell this story, I need to give a, a disclaimer. I specifically got Shannon's permission, my wife's permission, to tell this story. I even offered, I was like, I can make it anonymous. And she was like, cool lady that she is, was like, it's totally fine. I don't care. When we were dating, Shannon had this medical procedure that involved her taking some really powerful pain meds that made her quite nauseated. And she rested immediately after the procedure at our house, my parents' house where I was living, before I was then gonna drive her to her apartment where she could be more comfortable, rest more. When we were getting ready to go in my 1993 Honda Civic hatchback, we were worried about her being nauseated and then car sick in the car. So my mom handed me this plastic shopping bag, you know, just in case. Got to protect the fine upholstery of that 1993 Civic. Not exactly Corinthian leather, but whatever. And as we were driving about 20 minutes into the journey, nearly at Shannon's place, she started to be overcome by the feeling like she's going to throw up. And driving, I remember as distinct as if it was yesterday, looking over at Shannon in slow motion as she drew the plastic bag to her mouth, only for the throw up to go right through the bottom of the bag, unobstructed all over the floor of the car. <laughs> 
The bag my mom had handed us had had the bottom completely torn out. Not what anyone wanted. I loved that car. For some of us, the bottom has been torn out of the bag of our lives. We have broken cups. The things we've done, the things that have been done to us, mean that our experience of life is marked by this consistent lack, this wound that never heals, this void that empties itself. Some of that is true for everyone. It's just part of being human. We have leaky cups, but it is especially true for some of us in acute ways. Because of the traumatic things we've experienced, because of brain chemistry, simply because some of us have lower emotional capacity, whatever. What I want to emphasize is these feelings of anxiety, of lack that you feel. They might be about wrong cisterns. Like, that's the first reason, right? And we need to make sure we're drawing near to Jesus. But they might also simply be, I've got a broken cup. Our Old Testament reading this morning from Zechariah 14 connects with John 7 in that it describes springs of living water. And it also, in the verses after our reading, refers to the Feast of Tabernacles, the still being celebrated at this future moment when God's reign and rule is made complete. And it's got this beautiful image of streams of living water coming out of Jerusalem to the east and to the west. Did you hear that? To the nations, to the world. It's the reverse of what we saw play out in the news with floods, a river, a flood of blessing and life. But the thing about that image is that it is physically impossible. Geographically speaking, it cannot happen. Jerusalem is on a mountain, yes, but the mountains around it are taller. So the water physically cannot go up from Jerusalem, cannot flow out. I think this physical detail speaks to the reality that the world as it is presently constituted is not sufficient for the fullness of God's promise. That's just true of our experience. It does not nullify those promises, but our experiences of the promises of God, the promise of living water is incomplete in the world as it presently stands. Incomplete because the world around us is fallen and things will happen to us. And incomplete because our hearts are broken. I don't just mean broken in that we are sad, but that we're like that plastic bag with the bottom torn out. We are unable to hold the fullness of what God has promised us. We lose the plot, we forget his goodness, his nearness. This is why the people of God are constantly called to remember. Because we forget, we become empty. Things happen to us in a sinful, dysfunctional world, and we must be revived and renewed by drawing near to Jesus, not because we've necessarily turned away, but because we're finite, we're broken, we can't hold it. And that might be you today. And the invitation then is to draw near by remembering, remembering the promises of God in Jesus, the truth of the gospel, his love, the forgiveness he has won for you, his triumph over death and the grave and all that opposes you. Literally, talk to yourself, stir up the gift, remind yourself of what is true. And remember the, the tastes, the glimpses of these promises in your life, the experiences of his nearness and love, the ways he has graced you. 
the ways he's drawn you to himself. The beauty of a spring is that you can return to it. It is a replenishing source. And at the beginning of John's gospel, chapter one, it's said of Jesus that he is the one who baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. And that verb is continuous. He is an ongoing, ever-replenishing, reviving spring. He's not like the vendors that Daryl K. Royal Stadium or whatever, who will cut you off, right? Two is the limit. The Spirit is ever and always on tap, on offer. He is able to flood and reflood your life. And so you feel this sense of leak, this sense of loss. It can't hold it. I was just here last week. Don't worry about it. Come again. He does not grow weary of flooding your life with his goodness, his grace. So call to him, draw near to him, stir up the gift of his presence in your life. Okay, so we're talking about why it is that we struggle to feel and experience the fullness of satisfaction, the fullness of vitality that Jesus seems to promise in John 7. We've talked about wrong cisterns and broken cups. Now I want to talk about pierced sides. Jesus' brothers do not get it. As they implore him to be a successful influencer, we see that they're operating with a completely different conception of flourishing and success than Jesus has. This is what you've got to do. Play the game to be successful. What is your picture of a flourishing and good human life, a life of vitality? In the final verse of our reading, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the living water Jesus provides, is specifically linked to Jesus' glorification. In the Gospel of John, that term is always connected to Jesus' death on the cross. The glorification of Jesus occurs through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And in John 19, verse 34, at the moment of his death, Jesus is pierced. He is stabbed with a spear in the side, and from his side flow blood and water. Water from the source. That is the next mention of water in John, except for John 13, where Jesus uses water to wash his disciples' feet. And in both those moments, washing the feet of his followers and then literally being stabbed while crucified, I suspect that Jesus is not living what we would call his best life. He's not the picture of flourishing that we have. And yet these moments are connected to his glorification and to our receiving of his life-giving promise. Without his service, without his death, there is no living water for us. There's no fulfillment of the promises. This association of service and suffering with being satisfied and having vitality, it's confounding. It's confusing. It suggests that the path to our satisfaction, to our flourishing, is not found in the ease and in the health that we are so often tempted to pursue. And our dissatisfaction, our sense of the failure, perhaps, of God's promise might be related to this delta between our expectation and what the abundant life that Jesus actually offers is. From time to time here at Church of the Cross, we use the phrase, the life of God for the good of the world, as a way of expressing 
part of Jesus' promise here. The living spirit of God, the life, the triune God shares, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made available to the world. God calling out, offering his life to us. But that life is expressed in a cruciform way, in the way of a servant. It's not what we expect. The way of life has been shown to be the way of the cross, the way of service, of suffering, of self-denial. That's countercultural and just straight up hard. It is difficult. And like, I'm a nice guy. I want to immediately resolve the tension for you. But part of God's invitation is to simply recognize the reality that to follow Jesus means following a pattern of life that confounds our expectations of what the good life is, challenges our sense of what flourishing and happiness look like. And that doesn't even mean that our visions of flourishing are particularly extravagant or hedonistic, right? In 2 Corinthians 4, 16, the Apostle Paul writes, outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. The word wasting away there can be translated as destroyed. That's not like Paul is saying, I had to give up European vacations and Ferraris, right? He might've said, outwardly, I'm not flourishing. And the call of Jesus on our lives means stepping out of the particular treadmill of Austin, of the United States, of upward mobility, of greater self-sufficiency, eternal youth, and onto this alternative path, a path that involves looking beyond mere appearances to the inward renewal that is only ours in Jesus, in his presence through the Spirit, the Spirit that strengthens us to serve and bless others, even when we feel dry ourselves, the Spirit that makes God's grace strong and abundant especially in our weakness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English preacher in a collection of sermons called Spiritual Depression, speaks about fear and dryness and our experiences of lack and longing. And he says this, you are not living on yourself. You're not the only resource you're drawing upon. Do not think of yourself as merely an ordinary person. You live with eternal resources, not the natural alone. And that means that you can lose the world and gain what is most important. That means you can lose yourself in service to others and be held fast in the love of God. That means you can draw on resources that are not in and of yourself to bless others. The one who is our satisfaction, Jesus Christ, has gone this way before, knows it, can empathize with you every step of the way. We are called then to follow, to follow the pattern of Jesus' good, true, beautiful, perfect life. And for him, that meant a spear in the guts, a pierced side for the benefit of the whole world, for us, for the joy set before him. And that brings us to our final reason why it is that we might feel this chasm between Jesus, what Jesus promises and what we experience. And that is true impossibilities. In his poem, In the Children's Hospital, Lord Tennyson quotes a nurse who says, how could I serve in the wards with all their suffering if the hope of the world were a lie? 
To be a follower of Jesus is to be animated by true impossibilities, by the anticipation and hope of things that are easily dismissed as a fanciful mirage, right? Justice and healing, complete belonging, goodness, abiding love, the sad things made untrue. That's the stuff of fairy tales. It's notable that in John 7, Jesus does not say, you'll feel as though there's a stream of living water in your life. He's not speaking about subjective experience, but about theological reality, about the seemingly impossible, claiming the fairy tale as true. The only way the promise of Zechariah 14 about the water flowing down from Jerusalem, outlined in verse eight, the only way that can take place is because of this radical geographic renovation that's described in the verses earlier in the chapter. They're hinted at in our reading about Jerusalem being raised up, like that's physical language. It's like Jerusalem on an elevator. And in the verses earlier, the mountains around Jerusalem are described as being split in two, crumbling by the hand of God, remaking the world so that the streams of living water can flow out. It's a description that beggars belief. It's a complete remodel of the face of the earth. And that renovation of all things, including ourselves, is what we hope for, is what we long after, is what we strain after. And it's something that only God can accomplish, something that only God will accomplish. And so we live then with that expectation of what could be and the holy dissatisfaction with the way things are, with the way we are. With thanksgiving, yes, for the glimpses we have, the, the taste, the blessings of this life, but hoping after better, hoping after more. And that longing creates in us a desire for more than we currently experience. And that is difficult. That is hard. And Jesus' words here are not specifically about our subjective life, our experience. He's declaring something that's seemingly impossible saying it's true, that in our weakness and dryness, in our desire for something more, there's something real and tangible coming. The living God making the sad things come untrue, bringing to fruition his good purposes. The living God even meeting us now. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, talk about the seemingly impossible, filling us with the very fullness of God with the life of God that will one day stream over all the earth, flooding the nations with blessing, peace, and the goodness of God, filling us now, ours today, whether we feel it or not, impossible, but true. The forecast for Jacob's well does not look good, increasing drought and dryness. But for the followers of Jesus, our imaginations and our hopes are not linked or limited to the merely physical. Our beliefs, our, our hearts, our minds, our lives are saturated by the streams of living water and what is coming. And so today we have broken cups. We're prone to drink from the wrong cisterns. And on this side, the way of Jesus often looks like only the way of suffering and death. But the promise of Jesus is that in the midst of that dry and weary experience, he, the source of living water, is ours. And that what feels now like barely a trickle 
or only momentary splashes will one day impossibly but surely be this great river of God, a river of peace and blessing of life and vitality, renewing the land, renewing us who live by faith and not by sight, drinking deeply of the impossible dreams of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.